Okay, Acts chapter 2. This week we will look at 37 through 41. As we continue in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, grant that which you ask. Grant repentance, true heart repentance. And Lord, in this valley, may many turn from sin and rebellion toward Jesus. And, and may they bend the knee so that they may complete our joy and fellowship with them and with you, our triune God. Give us boldness and opportunity to bear witness so that your elect in this valley may hear the call to repentance and be saved from even this crooked generation. And grant that we may our, ourselves may lead lives of daily repentance, daily dying to the flesh and living to Christ. In his name we ask, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Acts 2, 37-41. You'll recall from the last passage that Jesus, or Peter, had said, essentially accused them of crucifying Jesus. He said, This Jesus whom you have crucified. So now he goes on. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Praise God. may be seated. So again, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And really the sermon is to explain why these people who are speaking in tongues are not drunk and to explain what's really going on. Um, And the day of the Lord, he says, is coming. It's even upon us. But those who who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on to define who is this Lord? Who is the Lord we are to call upon? And he says that the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost prove that Jesus Christ has been made both Lord and Christ. So Jesus is the, the Lord, the name of the Lord we're to call upon. And this Lord in Christ, Jesus, is uh, the very man these Jews in Jerusalem pinned to a cross. They, they had crucified their own covenant Lord. They've crucified Yahweh himself. They pinned their own Messiah to a cross. That's where we're at as we get to this passage. And he goes, he says now in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
What shall we do? That's the question I kind of want to deal with today. Uh, when, when the Spirit of God pricks us, when our hearts are cut to the core by the Spirit, when, when our consciences are plaguing us, this is the question, what shall we do? And we know that feeling well, don't we? All of a sudden, you're smacked across the face with this realization that you really messed up. And it's the absolute worst feeling. There's this sinking in your gut, this, almost like a, a, a panic, like, like you want to scramble backwards in time. There's this urgency that I've got to make this right. There's frustration, perhaps self-loathing. And it's just, how could I have done that? Now, we all know that feeling well, but can you imagine that feeling when you realize that you were the ones crying, crucify him, crucify him, about your own Messiah? Just talk about gut plummeting experience. But we should face up to the fact right now that we're no better off than they, right? Their sin was the most heinous sin ever committed. And no, not every sin is equally heinous. But we are equally guilty before the same living God. And it's true, in some sense, we too are responsible because our sin is is what put Jesus on the cross. Uh, John Owen, in, in Mortification of Sin, he reminds us of the value of loading our consciences with the guilt of sin. Not just admitting, yes, I'm guilty, but taking some time to actually feel the weight of the guilt of sin. Not that we should live in that headspace, but if we, like the Jews, are pricked, if our consciences are are wounded, if our hearts are cut, when we do take those sins to the cross, we will know what what it is we have been forgiven. It wasn't it the weight of sin and the burden of sin that caused Christian in Pilgrim's Progress to seek relief, to seek the weight to be removed. So we must feel the weight of sin. In the same way as Christians sought relief, the weight of our own sin against the holy God and our own complicity in the rebellion of man compels us to ask the same question, what shall we do? So our outline this morning is alliterated by happenstance. I didn't really, this just emerged. But response, result, and reason. What is the response when we're guilty? What is the result of that response? And what is the reason for the response? So the first part of a proper response toward guilt is seeking. This question, seeking, what shall we do? It's an interesting one because on the one hand it seems to imply self-righteousness. What shall we do? We, should, we need to do something to make this right. Or at least that has the potential to apply that. On the other hand, it also suggests hope that there is something that can be done. There's a remedy. There's atonement that can be made. If I were in their position, I think I might feel rather hopeless. What, what, What can anybody possibly do to make it right after murdering the Son of God? Of all the blunders... Killing the Messiah that your family's been waiting for for millennia has got to top the list. 
And I think the resurrection at that point and the ascension of, of Jesus to glory is not comforting to these people. I mean, if, if you murdered the guy who's now raised and, and reigning, that's actually quite scary. And we can feel the same way at times when we sin. How can Jesus possibly grant me forgiveness after I did that? Again. What hope is there for me? I, I feel like such a failure. The world's response is one of two things. Either the sort of self-esteem response. No, you're not a failure. To err is human. You must learn to forgive yourself. And then there's the self-righteous response. Do what you can to make it right. The, but, but, but the Christian response to I feel like a failure is, yep. Yep, we're a failure. Worldly responses do nothing because they still leave you holding the bag. The self-esteem response ignores the problem. The self-righteous response is is putting Band-Aid on a heart wound caused by like a thirty caliber built bullet. It's not enough. If we want freedom, we need to have our sin dealt with, really and fully dealt with. The Jews were asking the right question. And rather than, than following Judas's example, which quite frankly in the absence of hope is logical, that they seek relief. They seek atonement. What shall we do? And as Jews, they know the scriptures, uh, that they have an awareness of the character of God that on the one hand, who will, he will by no means clear the guilty. But on the other hand, is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is an audacity to their question, what shall we do? To suppose they still have a chance with God after they've murdered God is a bit audacious. But this is the kind of audacity we need when we bring our own guilt before God. When our hearts accuse us, we must know that God is greater than our hearts. There's no sin so great God cannot forgive. And these murderers of God prove it. So the first response is to seek. Seek atonement. Seek forgiveness. But it's not as though Peter sort of lets them off easy. He, he, he doesn't say, well, as long as you're sorry, you just kind of carry on as you were. The expectation is, if Jesus is the Messiah... If he's the ascended Lord, you're going to have to make some changes. So the second proper response to our guilt is repentance. Repentance. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And when we think of repentance, I think more often than not, we're actually thinking of remorse. We feel sorry for our sins or our mistakes or that we got caught. If you've raised kids, you know that remorse doesn't always result in change. In fact, if you wrestle with your own sin, you know that feeling bad about your sin doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stop. I mean, in fact, I think there are some kinds of sins, um, particularly sort of addiction type sins, that are a self-perpetuating cycle. 
They give us com- comfort or, or a hit of dopamine so we feel bad about the thing we did. We return to the thing we did because it makes us feel good and, and it keeps happening. So remorse is not enough. Repentance is more than remorse. And it's more than a change in mind only. For that matter, it's more than a change of actions only. But we can change our opinions about something without changing our actions. Or we can change our actions to... to out of compulsion, to get somebody off of our back without changing our hearts or our minds. Repentance is a change in the whole man. It's a genuine heart change. It's a turning of the whole person. Repentance is really death of self and life in Christ. Peter here, he calls them to repentance, an essential component of the gospel. We often talk about faith, but it's faith and repentance. We must turn away from our sin and our self-worship and turn toward Jesus. We need to change our posture. I mean, in our nature, I think of this image in my mind of the king kind of going down the street and the, the grateful servants all bending and bowing before him, but then there's us standing resolute in hatred toward the king. I'm not going to bow. That, that's our posture toward Jesus. But we need to have our posture changed. We need to bend the knee. Go from standing to kneeling. We, we must repent. So that's the second response to our guilt is repentance. Now this is fleshed out a little bit more in our third response to guilt, which is be baptized. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. 38 again, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you think about this, these these men of Israel were only months before so convinced that the name of Jesus belonged to, to a huckster, to a liar, to a blasphemer, that they were shouting, crucify him. And now Peter wants to baptize them in that name. See the connection of cha- cha- repentance, change. Baptism is many things. One of the things that baptism is, is it is a naming ceremony. When we're baptized, it's a sign and seal of our ingrafting into Christ and into his covenant family. When we come into the family, we are called by his name, by Christ's name. Uh, my, to- my childhood buddy that d- died a few months ago, uh, he was adopted by Scott and Judy Davidson. I don't know his birth parents' name. I mean, he's Nate Davidson. The change of name. That's what baptism is, is a naming ceremony. So, so when they ask Peter what to do, he says to them, here's what you must do. You must repent, and this repentance will be so complete and so comprehensive that you're going to become a part of a new community, a new family, and you're going to go by a new family name. A name you once once hated so much, the name of Jesus Christ. This makes baptism something we return to over and over again as we face our own temptations and trials, uh, because by it we're reminded of our family name. Uh, Yes, I've committed sins against God, heinous sins against God and man, but I do bear the name. I am a Christian. I am in Christ. Luther was famous for this, his battles with his conscience, the devil throwing the ink pot at the devil. Um, 
But, but when the accuser would come to him, that, this is what he would cry out, is, I am baptized. I am baptized. Baptism, of course, is not the end of all sin. Neither is our grafting into Christ, which baptism represents. But we continue to wrestle and to grow. The larger catechism reminds us on how we are to improve our baptism. Question 167. How is baptism to be improved by us? The answer is the the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and the ends for which Christ instituted it. The privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin, and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, as those that have therein been given, as those who that have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love, as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. I love that line there. As those who have therein given up their names to Christ. Like my friend Nate put off his old name. He took on the new family name, the name, we do the same, the name of Christ. So the three responses to our guilt in this passage are seeking repentance and baptism. When we encounter our own guilt, we audaciously seek relief from God. And we turn, we repent, heart, soul, and body, away from self-idolatry, self-reliance, and toward Christ. And humbly bend the knee to Him, taking on His family name, in baptism and enjoying the gracious benefits benefits of adoption. These are things that an unbelieving sinner must do to be rid of their guilt. Uh, but there are also things that that persist through the whole Christian life. We continue to audaciously seek God when we feel guilty over our sins. We this life, as Luther said, is a life of repentance. And we continue to look toward our baptism, or back toward our baptism. So we've seen the response to, to, to guilt. Now let's look at the result of that response. And the first result is forgiveness. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, that audacity in seeking relief and restoration, it, it, it pays off. <laughs> because it's not an audacity rooted in our own self-confidence, but in, in a sense of the character of God. We know He's merciful, and perhaps I can have some. Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
But that's an amazing God, an amazing promise that we can audaciously go to Him and say, You're merciful, can I have some? Here, there's no, Peter doesn't say that you must go to purgatory, <laughs> you, must, you must do some act of penance. He doesn't hang it over their heads. He, he simply says, Turn to Christ and, and be made partakers of Him. And his family, and you will be forgiven given your heinous sins. The debt owed is no longer owed. The penalty required is not for them to pay. It's been paid by Jesus. And they're forgiven freely. I mean, that, that's how we deal with guilt. Running to the cross. Running to Christ. And with forgiveness here, I want to very quickly pause and, and guard against a couple potential dangerous errors with regard to the relationship of baptism and forgiveness. Um, there's no magical power in the water or in the act of baptism itself that saves us. We're, we're not forgiven simply for receiving the sacrament of baptism. That's not what it's saying. It's actually the ingrafting into Christ and our union with Him that brings us salvation, which is what baptism represents. A baptism is the naming ceremony wherein God places his sign and seal on us and where we're identified with Christ and his people. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith 28.5 says that although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed or, or tied to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. The saying, you cannot be baptized and be saved, or you can be baptized and unsaved. However, the sign is important. It's a matter of obedience, as Christ commanded, that his disciples be baptized into the name. And more than that, why would anyone who is a member of Christ and of his people not want the ordained sign and seal placed on him? Why would he not take to himself the family name? So when we turn and come under the authority of Christ and receive salvation and come into his family, we are forgiven. We receive forgiveness. Now the next result is that, that we see here is that uh, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I often marvel at God's grace always exceeds expectation. I mean, I think about other systems that God could have put in place, theoretically, that would have been gracious, like... He could have just said, okay, you're sentenced your whole life long to slave labor. When you die, you'll be annihilated. And that's it. That, that would have been grace. Right? Like a, a release from wrath and hell would have been grace enough. But instead, His grace abounds so much that He's not only forgiven us, but He's made us His children. And he, He's going to let us live in the bliss of His eternal presence forever. Like grace upon grace. So these men, these murderers, are offered the free offer of forgiveness for their sins. And on top of that, Peter says, also, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
you'll not be subclass grunts among the, the disciples of God. You'll not be the wooden water carriers of the disciples of Jesus. You'll be equal with us. You'll have the spirit that you're seeing here today. Which speaks to their unity, their full inclusion in the people of God. As we saw back at the beginning of the Peter's message in his quotation from Joel 2, all the people will receive the Holy Spirit, young and old, male, female, slaves, free, daughters, sons. But you can't, you, you, if you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. That's what Romans 8, 9 and 10 says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now all through this passage, it has been made clear to us that to to follow Jesus is to leave the things behind in this world that we care about. Repentance, casting off of the old, seeking the new setting our own name aside for the name of Christ. So the third result here is salvation from the world. Saved from the world. Verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. We are deeply entrenched in the world uh, our patterns, our places, our friends, our, our, our families, our communities, it's all so enmeshed. It's not like we just pl- pluck it out and it's, <laughs> there's like roots. When we're called to salvation through repentance, it's not all that easy to break away from the world. Some do find the message of the gospel rep- repulsive, but even if you, if we find it attractive or appealing, we wrestle with the competing appeal of the world. So Peter here, he pleads with his countrymen with many words that that they depart from the world and and come to Christ. Uh, The record we have here in Acts of Peter's sermon is really a a portion of what he says. It says he bore witness continued to exhort them with many other words. So this may have been his introduction uh, it may have been kind of a summary of what, all that he said. So I don't want to hear anything about moving to five-minute sermons because he spoke much longer. <laughs> but but the, the essence of his plea here is depart, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Leave the world and come to Christ. This last week I ran across a sermon by a, a fellow... PCA pastor and he was preaching I don't know how he worked this out but it was an evangelistic setting in a sort of an RV park that he's been doing regularly and he was preaching this this time on the topic of sadness and depression from a biblical perspective Psalm 46 maybe and at, at one point he was commenting on the source of our problems he said, you know, we like to blame our circumstances on, on the world around us, on our family, our friends, our work, our school, and they play a part, to be sure. But he said, about uh, your family and these things, they gave you the clothes, you're the one who put them on. You need to own that. 
Repentance is a process of dying, dying to that old man, to the old self that was mired and caked in that mud and grime of the world in which we once lived, so that we may now live free in Christ. The result of repentance and calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus is that we are saved from the mess of the world in which we are once mired. Peter, in his epistle, says it this way. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And he calls that that sort of sticky quicksand, he calls it the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So now, be careful to take note here. We're, we're not... There's no suggestion here that we repent and are baptized and we somehow arrive. <laughs> the, the very fact that, that Peter and all the other New Testament epistles, for that matter, have to write to Christians to keep on warning them to not go back is suggests that we wrestle with this. But But... You see the liberating power of repentance and baptism into the name of Jesus. My friend Nate, again, his parents, they're as white as day. Nate is dark, was dark-skinned, Navajo, maybe Hispanic some. And many of his mannerisms, his health issues, his appearance, they were all inherited from his birth parents. And those things continued after he was adopted. But at the end of the day, he, he would sign his name Nathan Davidson. So we still wrestle with our old nature. We go through seasons of identity crisis. But it's no longer, that, that old way is no longer our identity. We have been baptized. We are in Christ and He in us. We are rescued from our own crooked generation plucked from the feudal ways of our fathers by His grace. We've seen the response and the result, but what is the reason? Why may we and must we respond and receive these things? Verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I read something a while back that that said pastors are paid to stare out the window. (laughs) This verse gave me some staring out, hours of staring out the window time. And I'll talk about it with you later about why Um, it's challenging. Um, I called my pastor buddy and we talked about it too. It's a toughie. But we see here there's this promise. And part of our problem is that when we are pricked with guilt and we don't know what to do with it and we cling to it and, and we can't let it go, is, is part of the problem is we fail to remember the promises in the Word of God. Peter reminds these men of Israel... Remember, even though men from all over are present, he specifically and sort of oddly directly addresses in this sermon the men of Israel. But he reminds these men of Israel, the men who crucified Jesus, this this whole Holy Spirit coming in the New Covenant, this, this power of the Spirit is for you because the promises are for you. 
like all of the promises of God that belong to his people, this one is for you. Joel 2 is for you. The Spirit is for you. If you will repent and come into Christ and take his family name, the Spirit that you're seeing here today is for you. We must recall that when our consciences are plagued with guilt, that the promises of salvation and forgiveness and freedom are only obtained in Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So when you are cut to the heart, when you're struggling with your sin, you must run to the promises of God. And He in whom every promise has its yes and amen. That's Jesus Christ. That's the only place we find and deal with guilt and sin is Jesus Christ. And the promises are not just for the men of Israel at Pentecost. They are for, also it says, subsequent generations to your children. And they are for all men of every nation. It says, for all who are far off. I think Peter here, who had not had his Acts 10 experience of the descending of the sheep and of the unclean animals and his experience with Cornelius, I think he maybe was thinking broadly of the dispersed Jews, but in the flow of Luke's thought, it's clear that the application is all who are far off is Gentiles as well, you and me. So we too, we, we are called to the promise. We, the promise is for us to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. For we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now when he says, as many as our Lord shall call, um, in Acts 17, Paul says, God having overlooked the times of ignorance, God commands all men everywhere to repent. There's a universal call to repent. So the promise is, in one sense, for all men everywhere. If you will repent and be baptized in the name of Christ, you will be saved. You will receive the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, God effectively or effectually calls certain people to himself. This call is is not an optional one. It's irresistible. All who he calls will come. I've already quoted the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism, so I might as well complete the, the trifecta and quote from the shorter catechism. So, Question 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery... That's kind of like the first part of this passage. You murdered Christ, convincing us of our sin and misery. We feel that. Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. That, that's effectual calling. So, from our perspective, we, we hear the Gospel of Christ and we kind of start to, to think... Yeah, that does make sense. I'm beginning to feel this terrible load of guilt and sin weighing on my soul. I'd really like to be rid of it. And and it sure would be nice to to have it gone. And and we start to think, 
I really do need to make some changes. And I, I, I'm realizing now that I've been the God of my own life and I need to turn from sin and idolatry. And, and this man, Jesus, seems like Lord and I should bend the knee to him. We start to have those thoughts. And from our perspective, uh, that, that's what's going on. But, but behind the scenes, why is all that stuff happening? Why are you having those thoughts? Where did these ideas begin to enter our twisted little brains? And, and once we've believed in Christ and we've matured a little bit in Christ and we look back, there's no other conclusion that we can come to than God was beckoning me. He was calling me. That's why I began to have those thoughts. That, that's the nature of the relationship between the universal call to repentance and the effectual call and why some of us have bent the knee and others have not. On that day of Pentecost, it says that God beckoned 3,000 souls to himself. In verse 41, it says that they not only heard the word, but that they received the word. They heard, heard the word of God and they applied it to themselves. These wicked men, men who had rejected their own Messiah, some of them even responsible for his crucifixion, they audaciously sought relief from their guilty consciences. And then when they heard the free offer of the gospel, they laid hold of that promise for themselves. They not only heard it, but they received it. And that day, 3,000 souls were transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, not by gimmicks or, or by strength of will, but by the simple Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Word of God. So, may we have the same strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim that same gospel. May we lay hold of that same gospel for ourselves and may it daily be our sustenance, our spiritual sustenance. And may we be thankful, knowing, as Colossians says, that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Amen.